The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Hey, remember this. What have we been asking this whole time uh, since uh, the midway point, uh, really, in uh, Mark? What question have we been asking Who is this Messiah? We've been seeking the identity of Christ as Mark recounts Jesus' life. And and today what Jesus is going to do in this passage for us is he's gonna meld together really two inseparable truths uh, or two inseparable titles that are very familiar to us as uh, believers. uh, But maybe we've never considered them in depth. And it is this, that Jesus is Christ the Lord. Jesus is Christ the Lord. And you're like, well, yeah, we use those terms all the time. I mean, uh, I'm assuming that for the majority of us in here, this is not the first time that we've heard that Jesus is both Christ and Lord. And yet these are two very important things that come together. When we say that Jesus is the Christ, it's just really the Greek rendering of the Hebrew uh, idea of a Messiah. He's the savior or the rescuer. And the fact that he is the Lord is, means that he is the master, the king. He is our boss and to be a father follower of Christ is really to embrace both. You can't have one without the other. He can't just be your savior without also being your master, your Christ and your Lord. And so let's uh, sit in now on Jesus' class here. Let's hear the lesson that he teaches beginning in verse 35 uh, through the end of the chapter in verse 44. Here now is lesson as I read it for us. It says this, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contribute out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is God's word for God's people. Do you see what Jesus did here? Do you see what he did here? As he took the crowd, the the great throng that was uh, still uh, gathered here, he took them to the word of God. Psalm 110, verse one, to be precise there in verse 36. And what does he do? He does a quick devotion in our passage. He he, he asks some questions and then he makes some observations about human behavior and human motivation. And then he makes some life application about what to do and how to live and what not to do and how not to live. What does that sound like? Do you see what it is? It sounds a lot like small group, doesn't it? It's like this is the best small group you could ever uh, come and be a part of with Jesus as your small group leader. He comes, he opens up the word of God, asks some heart penetrating questions, makes some observations, and uh, sends them out with some application about how to live out their faith. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? 
is pretty awesome about how they are uh, uh, living and how we are to live ourselves. And so let's, we're just like sitting in on class, we're sitting in on small group here, and so here's our first takeaway as we uh, dig a little deeper. It's this, bow before the Lord. Bow before the Lord in verses 35 through 37. And we don't really have much context here uh, and much content rather uh, of what is really some extraordinary teaching by uh, Jesus. He asks a question, he uh, brings out a verse and then he asks another question. Do you see that in our verses here? He's just teaching in the temple. He asks this question that this first one says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? He just asks a simple question, one to get them considering, one to get them really thinking. And then his answer in verse 36 is, is, is two parts really profound because what is he doing here? He's teaching us about the authorship of the scriptures, right? You see that in verse 36? He affirms the dual authorship of the scriptures, that David wrote it, but uh, empowered by whom? In the Holy Spirit. That's really important. You should underline that. You can put a little note, 2 Peter uh, 1, verses 20 to 21, for some context to go look up later, and uh, Peter's teaching on this. But here, what Jesus is doing is affirming the dual authorship, that the scriptures were written by real humans, by men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, not in a trance-like way, not in, you know, some, like, metaphysical, zombie-like way, but they were inspired as they wrote the scriptures. This is what sets the Psalms apart from other songs that we sing as David was writing these Psalms. He was, uh, the ones that were recorded, that are recorded in our scripture were ones that were also penned and inspired, uh, moved by the Holy Spirit to write these inerrant authoritative words for our life. And so as he asks this question and Jesus uh, answers them, He's, Jesus is touching in on something and taking it a little deeper that was really widely accepted and rightly accepted. And that is this, that the, the Messiah or the Christ would be a descendant of David. They believe that you, all throughout your Old Testament, beginning with God's covenant with David in uh, 2 Samuel 7 and then uh, reiterated over and over and over through the, the prophets that the Christ, the Messiah or the Savior, would come from the line of David. And so the scribes knew this. They're not dummies, mind you. See, the, the scribes were the teachers of the Old Testament law. They were brilliant. They knew uh, the Hebrew Bible. They would maybe be uh, uh, you know, comparable to uh, our most brilliant uh, professors, our professor theologians of the day. They knew God's word, the law, inside and out. And so there, he's affirming something that they already believe, something that we've looked at in weeks past. Blind Bartimaeus uh, confessed to recognize Jesus as the son of David in chapter 10. But what Jesus does here then is he takes it a little bit deeper. They're familiar with this psalm. They're familiar with this concept. They, you know, had a great hope in uh, the Messiah coming to rule and reign. But what they hadn't considered though they were the smart ones of the day, is this second question in verse 37. As he quotes Psalm 110, verse one, the Lord said to my Lord, he's affirming that David wrote this, but then he says, so how is he, how is the Messiah also his son? How is he the Lord? How is the Messiah David's 
son. See, even David knew that the Messiah would, would, be his, would come from him. His descendants would also be his master his Lord. And so in quoting Psalm 110, the first Lord, um, you, it may be in all caps, but it's referring to God the Father saying to David's Lord or the Messiah he, that he would come and he would rule and he would reign. That he, his enemies would be put in subjection under his feet. And I'm asking this question again, we're not sure how they respond to it other than that the crowd hears him how. Gladly, they were happy we don't really know. Or are they happy because, he, because they stumped the scribes? Because they don't have an answer? Or that Jesus was the Christ and they hear him gladly because they have accepted Christ as the master and the Messiah? We don't necessarily know, but this truth was astounding to them. Though it, was, though it may be familiar to us. But the application is just the same here. As we think of Christ being the Lord, the call to all of us is to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ with gladness. To embrace him humbly and joyfully as we submit to his way. As we come to Christ, as all of our life is bowed down before him. See, the gospel, the good news, is a, an invitation into a new kingdom with a good king and out of an old kingdom through the rescue of an amazing savior. See, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what we walk into. We walk into uh, the kingdom of light and out of the domain of darkness, rescued by the same one who will be our king. And what are we to do? We are to bow before him. We bow before him as we embrace him as our Lord and Savior, and we continue uh, all throughout life to bow before him. Ever wonder where Jesus is right now? You ever thought about that? Like we know, is, is Christ dead right now, church? No. no, absolutely not. He is alive, isn't he? That's right, Christ is alive. And so where is he right now? Well, he is at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over your life, being worshiped by the heavenly hosts. And we as his followers, as his disciples are here on this earth, bowed before him. Metaphorically speaking, of course, unless we're praying or whatever, and we are actually bowed before him. But our life is one of humility before the Lord, saying, lead me, Jesus. Where you go, I'll go. I'll follow where you take me. I will trust you where you lead me. I know that your way is best, and I don't want to get in your way, whether through my thinking or through my actions, but I don't want to get in your way. And see, here's the, here's the truth. It's hard to get in the Lord's way when you're bowed down before him. It's hard to get in God's way when you're bowed down before him but he will lead you, he will take you, he will show you the way that is best. And he actually shows us, that's what the rest of it, he, he lays out this teaching that he is Christ the Lord and then he shows us how we can stand in his way and how we don't. And so here's our next takeaway, not only do, are we to bow before the Lord, but we are to beware of pretentious religion. We're to beware of pretentious religion. See, what Jesus does now is he, he makes some observations about the scribes' behaviors and their motivations from their religiosity to their wealth. He knows that they are highly regarded as teachers of the law. We've just covered that. They were brilliant. They knew the Old Testament law. But as you, as you get in here to this, this warning that Jesus gives in verse 38, he begins to talk about their outward behavior. And here's some things that you should know about the scribes is they would wear these long white robes. 
these brilliant robes all the way down to their ankles and around the bottom would have these tassels and they would parade through town, through the marketplaces, through church, through anywhere that they could get recognition. And they really stood out just based on their, upon their wardrobe because they, they were wearing these white robes and the, you know, the garb of the day was more drab. You know, maybe it had some color uh, in it as it was dyed, but, uh, it, you know, just more earth type tones with some other, you know, colors mixed in. But here the scribes would stand out amongst the commoners amongst anyone else for their big white robes. So much that one commentator says this eloquently. He says this about them. They were uh, ecclesiastical swans, regally gliding amongst the common mud hens of humanity. And that's, that gives you just a great picture. They thrived on recognition as they traipsed through town. You can almost picture them, you know, like getting pictures with babies, you know, as they were shaking hands and smiling and, uh, you know, taking selfies with, uh, with onlookers. They craved the prestige of the platform in the synagogue, in the church. Actually, what they would do is they would like sit up front with their back to the the Torah scrolls that were before them and they would sit up in front of everybody so all the commoners could see how, uh, how regal they looked, how impressive they were. At the feasts, they liked to sit next to the host. They wanted the place of recognition. You know, these were, these were the religious cel- celebrities, by the way, yeah? If you were throwing a party, who, of course, who are you gonna invite? Who's gonna be on the invitation list, right? would be a scribe. And from all appearances, these guys are awesome, aren't they? They're religious, they're elite, they're blessed by God, they're living the life that we all want, don't we? You're not fooled by it, are you? You're not fooled by it because we know, just like right behind, behind the scenes, look at verse 40, we know that they're predators, right? They prey on the most vulnerable and they prey only to appear religious religious predators of the most dangerous kind, taking advantage and taking from anyone and everyone everything. They devour widows' houses. That's a pretty strong term. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to what? Devour. So the most vulnerable among them in their day They take advantage and for pretense just pray to hear uh, so that their voice may be heard. Now thankfully we don't have scribes in the church anymore. There's nobody prancing around in white robes or anything. At least I don't like nobody. Somebody's wearing white. They're like, oh, should I not? It's okay, you can wear white. It's fine. It's fine. But it's not hard to see the parallels to others in our society, is it? It's not hard to see the parallels, the TV preachers, the pastors around the world parading in much the same way, seeking, uh, you know, the influence of politicians, those with the, you know, the big hair and uh, fancy clothes. They're selling their trinkets on TV and online to trick those who uh, are weak and widowed. So church, it's right for us to be discerning, right? It's right for us to be discerning, to to be aware of the pretentious. In many ways, you can read these few verses here as a as a guide for like how to spot a phony, or how to spot a phony. Some the type of religion that we are not after, the type of religion that really turns people away from the true gospel. Right? If our attention is on the person and not on Christ, our attention is in the the very wrong place but our attention should be on Christ. 
It's right for us to be discerning, and at the same time, it's right for us to be discerning of our own hearts. It's not just a problem for others. It's not just something that we are looking for in others because deep down lurk the desires in our own heart to be noticed, to, to be important, to be recognized, even to take advantage, to get rich or at least be known as rich. And left to ourselves, we would pursue those desires at all cost with full devotion, standing in the very way of God. But God sent Christ to rescue us from destroying ourselves, his creation, and receiving the condemnation that awaits the pretentious religion. See, this is a warning for us. See, the, see, the, the scribes, did they know their scriptures? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I just told you that, so you're assuming, yeah. They, they knew their scriptures, right? They knew their Bibles, they were steeped in this, and yet they were deceived. They were caught, and we can get in that too. We can think that we have it all together. We can think we know all, all about the, the Lord, that we know our Bibles inside and out, and, 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 and want to be known like that. I can be that way. God in his grace just points this out to warn us. It's his grace, church. Warnings like this from the Lord are his grace to open our eyes to where we are blind, to point out where we stand in his way, to point out where others may be standing in his way, and it's his grace. And so when Jesus, when he sheds light on how we steward our money, how we steward our life, it's his, it's his grace, It's his grace that he lays before us and says, hey, don't live like this. I'm your Lord, I'm your master, and I have a better way. Watch out for this road. This is the wide road that leads one place to destruction. But here, follow me on the narrow road. And as we follow him there in verse 41, his classroom moves into the temple treasury. Into the temple treasury where he makes an additional warning and then, points out a positive example. But in the temple treasury here, you should know uh, as they would move into this room, across around the room, there were 13 like big chests with these horn-shaped things across on the top. And this is where the people would bring their offerings. Okay, in those days, they didn't have like credit cards. You couldn't go online. There wasn't anything. You hauled your offering to the temple. And you would come and there's these boxes and you would put it, you know, through the little horn and, you know, it's kind of like a game. You know, those things that kids love to play and lights shine and then like a claw comes and misses the bear and breaks their heart and all that. You know, or another one, he put it in and then it's like pushes and it's supposed to push all the money, you know. But they'd go in and you could just hear, especially at this time. Remember the season, it's the Passover, right? And so thousands, tens of thousands have descended upon Jerusalem. And so this is a busy place as people who have traveled far are bringing their offering to the temple. There's thousands of people in there. And so you can just imagine the clinking and chinking of the coins that are falling into this chest louder than a, you know, than a, a, a Vegas casino floor. And Jesus takes us into this classroom. And Jesus, what's he doing there? He's people watching. You see that? Verse 41. He sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting in money into the offering box. You ever people watch? 
<laughs> no, nobody. Just me. Just me. Yeah. I was like, maybe. I used I, I used to love doing it. when I was young and lived in Chicago. And it was just like, especially coming out of a small rural dairy farming community and then plucked into downtown Chicago is just like all flavors and manners of people. It was fascinating to me. Just last week, as Aaron and I were coming back from the pastor and wife retreat with the GCC, we were sitting in the airport. The airport is just a fascinating place to kind of people watch, right? All kinds of people coming and going, and maybe it's just me, but I often wonder, like, where are they headed? And what is motivating them? What is the purpose of their trip? What are, you know, do they know the Lord? Do they not? And, and you just kind of watch human interaction and kids and how people respond, you know, in, in groups. And Jesus is a people watcher, too both as a human and as a ruler of the universe here, he is watching over. And he, in this, he invites us, here's our third takeaway, to behold a pure faith. To behold a pure faith. You might be thinking to yourself, wait, 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 wait a minute. What are we talking about here? Like faith and money? What are you, where are we going with this, preacher? Oh, hey, if you're a, I'll just put you at ease, especially if you're a guest and coming here, you know, like if you just started coming, we're not after your money, yeah? We're not gonna, the health, wealth, gospel, all that stuff, that's, that's, that's a sham. But you need to know, we do talk about money because Jesus talks about money. He encourages us in it. He invites us into it. And, and, and it, is, it is good for us to talk about it bowed before the Lord humble before the Lord. And what Jesus is doing here is just using money as an object lesson for faith and how we bow before him as our Messiah and our master. See, the pretentious give to be seen by men. The widow gives to be seen only by God. The pretentious give to be seen by men, but the faithful give to only be seen by God. And so as, as Christ opens up this, uh, uh, up this can of worms for us, right? Everyone just gets quiet. It's kind of uncomfortable, I know. But here, it's just an object lesson. It's an object lesson for us that we want to talk about. And money makes a bad Messiah, doesn't it? Yeah. Becomes a bad Messiah when we look to our money as the way out of our problems. If I just get more, if I just have this, if I, if I get, then, then I will be rescued out of my problems or uh, it makes a bad messiah if I'm looking to money to gain prominence to to get some influence and if I just have more then I will have more influence in in the community in my job and it's a really bad messiah it's also a really bad master debt is a bad master to be enslaved to to get, find ourselves upside down in how we use our money. It's a bad master as we seek to get more and more and more and more of it chasing the American dream. See, money was never meant to be our Messiah nor our master. Christ is our Messiah and our master. Amen? Amen, he is. He is. And so Jesus, when he points out this poor widow, the one that the scribes had probably likely tried to devour, he elevates her pure faith. He's pointing out to her, see, look at this woman. These guys gave out of, out of their abundance. They gave to be seen. They gave to be heard. They gave to gain influence. And here this widow comes in and she gave all she had. All she had to live on. An example of faith as we abandon ourselves to the Lord, as we render to God the things that are God, as we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's saying, here is a woman who gets that. 
Here is a woman who understands what it means to have complete trust in the Lord to provide for her physical needs. Some may read this and think, man, she's being reckless. This is poor stewardship. She could have kept one or not the other. Why? But she's, but the fact that Jesus is commending her shows that no, she is an example of pure faith, that her faith is bearing the fruit of quiet generosity, joyfully supporting the work of the ministry that was there through the temple as corrupt and as crazy as it was. But here is a woman set out for us, unnamed, unprovided for apart from the Lord. And she is becoming an example of great stewardship to all of us. And so what are we beholding here? What is the, what is the gift of the widow here? What is it teaching us? Is she just gave like all she had, this uh, ascent. It's like for us, like, can you imagine being in a place where all you had was a couple bucks in your pocket? Maybe some of you have been. And just say, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. And so what does her teaching, or what does her life teach us about giving? Well, here's some things I would say. Let's start with this. What giving is not. First, giving is not a toll. We give to the Lord. It's not a, it's not a toll. You know, like what, what you have to pay for driving on the road. Who hates driving, <laughs> paying tolls? This guy. I like the speed to get around Austin, but I hate the like $15 that it takes <laughs> to get around there. You know, giving is, it's not like this. It's not a toll that we, you know, that we have to pay for using the road. Giving is also not a tip, you know, that we, that we just give out to, you know, like, well, I kind of like that. The song was pretty good. It moved me today. Yeah, the sermon, it was pretty good. That, yeah, it deserves a little, put a little something in there. But today, no, it wasn't like, I know that song. They sing it off key. No, it's not. Giving isn't just a tip that we bring to, you know, pay some people for their service. Lastly, giving is also not a tax. It's not just a, it's not a tax. We don't, you know, who's filled out their taxes already? Anybody, anybody Johnny on the spot about it? Some of you are waiting until April 14th, right, to get after it. It's not just some tax exacted by the governing authorities imposed on us. It's not just what we pay as membership dues. No, this is not what giving is all about. See, what the widow is teaching us is this, that giving is worship. That giving is, is it's, it's an act of worship. It's how we say paycheck after paycheck that money is not my master nor my Messiah. It's how we say paycheck after paycheck that God, you are worth more than anything that I could buy. It's how we say paycheck after paycheck that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is my greatest treasure. It's how we say paycheck after paycheck that God, I have complete trust in you to provide all that I need. It's a way that we say paycheck after paycheck, Jesus, I am committed to the great commission that I want my life to count. I want my life to be invested in eternal things. I want to see disciples made. And the way that we say that, because we can say that in our hearts, but the way that we tangibly demonstrate that, how we show it is really through our giving, through our quiet generosity. And this church is worship. See, all the things that we've just said about this, this is, this is what describes our worship. This is why we include it in our services because we believe Jesus' other teaching on this in Matthew 6, 21, where he says, where your treasure is, there your heart 
will be also. And we come to worship, we come to worship or, or to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And so giving is an act of worship, and God is so gracious to point this out to us. He knows the deception of our heart. He knows how these things get kind of mixed, how, they, how, how it can take hold and root in, in our heart. And so God is so good to just point this out to us. And so let's get super practical. You want to? Everyone take out their, their bank accounts. No, just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. We all kind of chuckle, but let's just get super practical. Well, okay, so here's, here's what it's not. Here's what it is. But how much? How much do we give? And what's the heart behind it? How, how much does, does the Lord require of us, if we want to say it that way? Because what do we see here? That Jesus, he sees both the amount and the motivation of both people's, both groups giving, right? He sees the amount and the motivation behind the widow, and he sees the amount and the motivation behind the pretentious. And so well, let's, let's just talk about that. Well, what's the amount? What's the motivation? What's the heart? You want to cover both of those? What do you want to do first, the amount or the motivation? The motivation, we'll get to the heart of it first. Okay, here's the motivation. Here's how the scripture talks about how we are to give. We are first to give faithfully. We see this in the widow here. She is just faithfully giving in both senses of the word. She is giving full of faith and consistently, generously, regularly. That's what God calls us to, to give faithfully. That's why we say, just set it so you don't forget it. We tell our money where to go. It's out of a heart because we want to be faithful with the things that God has given us, trusting him to give. The second way is that, uh, that we're to give is cheerfully. You know what I was struck by in, uh, in, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8? Is that as Paul is, as, uh, he's talking about the churches in Macedonia, and it says that they are begging him. They're begging him. He uses that word if you look it up. 2 Corinthians chapter eight. But are they begging to receive? It says that they are begging him to participate in the work of ministry. Isn't that crazy? That, he, that they are cheerfully, they are so eager to give. That they, they are begging, we, we want to be a part of this. We want to fund gospel ministry. We give faithfully, we give cheerfully. And, then, and here's a third heart motivation, we give honestly. Honestly. We, we see this in Acts chapter five, right? When Ananias and Sapphira, God knows the amount, and they come and they lie to God, to the Holy Spirit, it says, and it, uh, they, they, they were dishonest. And how well did it go for Ananias and Sapphira? Not so great. God knows the amount. He knows the motivation, so we give honestly, and lastly, we give generously because God has been so generous to save us when we recognize where we were, the cost that, that Christ paid to stand in our place, the greatest act of generosity. And so we want others to know that as well. That's why our giving is, is not only discipleship, great commission oriented, it's evangelistic, which is a part of the great commission. We want others to know the hope that we have. And this is what motivates the believer to give. And so how much? How much? You put it off long enough. You wanted the motivation. How much do we get? I'm, and I'm getting in a room like this, if we were to survey the teaching that we've all had, we've probably had various kind of, uh, you know, teachings on this. I'd recommend a, a great book called Managing God's Money by Randy Alcorn. It's real small, super helpful. He's got a couple other books, Money, Possessions, and Wealth, something like that. Um, the Treasure Principle, some other things that are really helpful. But here's the amount. You should feel it. 
Like, wait, that's not an amount. But here's, here's the thing. You, Jesus knows the amount, but he's not impressed by ex- exorbitant amounts if the heart isn't in the right place. It's not really about that. You've probably heard of the tithe, right? How much is a tithe? It's what percentage? 10%. 10%. That's a great goal. I'm not convinced that it's a command for us believers, but it is a fantastic goal that I think that all of us would feel, that we would feel in our giving, that we would feel the impact as we give away what God has given us. But 10% for some would be like a stretch. Some of you might think, whoa, whoa, 10%. You know, if you're at 0%, that's a massive stretch. Like, I don't, I don't know if I can live off of that. But in other cases, that might just seem like minuscule. I mean, I can give way more than that. And so 10% is a great goal. Um, but I would say if you're, you know, just you know, seek out in the amount that you decide to give between you and the Lord and with your family, this, this should not just be something how we, you know, like, well, well if we feel like it today, we, we said it's not a tip, it's not a toll, but we should feel the impact of our giving. Do you think the widow felt the impact of her gift? I better believe she did. The next meal, she felt it. Next time she needed some new clothes, she felt it. The next time, you know, she was in need of something. But you think she also felt the joy of the worship that she was giving? I think she did. I think she did. And so how do we feel that? Well, we feel it as we are increasing, as we are growing. If you're not giving anything, then maybe it's 2%. Maybe it's 5%. Just look and feel the impact of your giving. And here's the last thing as we think of amounts. I would say not only should you feel the impact, but uh, to, uh, to have the heart of growth in your giving. Being growing and increasing. You know, in the same way that we grow in our maturity and our faith and our responsibility as we grow in maturity and, and as we grow in, you know, influence and things in the church in a good way, I think is throughout your life, like you get the joy of growing in this, of supporting the work of the ministry. The widow got the, got the heart right, got the amount right, and God took that and used her life as an example for us to behold of pure faith, of what it means to say, Lord, I trust you in all things. What does this sound like? What, is this, what does this sound like? It sounds like worship, doesn't it? sounds like an act of faith. It sounds like a way that we demonstrate, God, we trust you. We worship you. We give all that we have to you, our time, our talent, and treasures. And it would be tragic for us to miss this. It would be tragic for us to be all hot and bothered by, by, by Jesus' words here. As tragic as the, the, as the scribes just rejecting Christ as the, as the Lord, as the Messiah, when he's standing right there, as he's showing them the scriptures. They knew the scriptures, and it's tragic, but, but, but rather Jesus here, he's inviting in the joy, us, he's inviting us into the joy of following him. He's inviting us into the blessing of trusting him with all we have and all we are. He wouldn't invite us in only to abandon us, only to be taken advantage of, only to devour us. That's the way of the scribe. It's the way of the dragon. It's the way of the lion. But the way of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the way of the Savior, is one of life, joy, hope, and constant provision in Jesus Christ. Would you worship me now as we pray, as we turn this over to the Lord, and as we sing a final song? Bow with me as we pray.
God in heaven, thank you for these words. Thank you for caring about us, for being so gracious to us that you would, that you would delve into these hard parts, that you would, that you would point out the, 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 the areas that are in our life that just get so tangled, God. And you are so gracious, you're so kind, you don't beat us up, you don't, uh, you're not gonna take advantage of us, but you call us into this generosity, you call us into faith, into following you with complete dependence and confidence, Lord. So thank you for that invitation, God. Thank you that you are so good. Thank you that you always provide, you never fail, you never falter, and you prove that over and over and over again. God, let us walk in faith. Let us trust you in whatever circumstances you are. God, finances are on our mind, but it's beyond that, God. It's a bigger heart principle. There are other things that you're calling us to, other fears that we have that we just tentative about. We're timid to step forward in faith. And yet we know, God, we, we know that you would never leave us nor forsake us. You wouldn't call us into something and then head the other direction. And so thank you, God, for both demonstrating and calling us into a life of generosity, a life of humility. It's a life of following you every step of the way. And so we trust you. We, we're confident in these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.